Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, for the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be together again. If you're new here, or if you're visiting, I see some visitors. Some of them are related to me. Welcome, you guys. Um, or soon to be related to me, but we're doing a flyover of the Old Testament, and maybe you, hopefully you've been able to retain a copy of that timeline. There should be some in the back if you want to grab one and fill it out. We're just getting started on that timeline. I think I've got 45 spots on there. We were, we're up to about number five right now. We're in Genesis, as you know. Um, last week, we spent our time largely with Abraham, and we went through chapters 11 through 23. We saw his sojourns. He's a, he was a nomad, moving around from place to place. He, he, he moved from Ur to Haran up in the northeast, and then eventually down toward Shechem, and kind of central there, and then we saw him go to Egypt a couple of times to avoid, avoid famine, and Beyond his travels, we noticed God's interaction with Abraham, right? God called him from the land of Haran, and eventually Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Actually, multiple places and multiple times, Genesis tells us he he called on the name of the Lord. Now, I didn't give you the date for Abraham last time. I should have done that, but the call of Abraham would have been about 2091 B.C. That's pretty agreed upon date. That would have been the date that God called him as his own, called him to worship him as the one true God in the, the, when he was 75 years old. We saw 
And it's important that we continue to see and remember this covenant that God made with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. God would bless him personally. God would make him into a great nation and give him many descendants. God would bless those who bless and curse those who curse him. And God would give his descendants the land, that is, the land of Canaan. We saw the covenant was unconditional. That is, it's based upon God alone and his faithfulness, not upon what Abraham would do. Now, as I said, I'm not going to let you forget about this covenant. And as we go forward through Genesis and and really the whole of the Old Testament, so much of the stories of prophecy, everything else rests upon this Abrahamic covenant. We also saw that Abraham lived by faith. He's, He's known for that. God was his provider and he trusted God with the things that he could not see. That's living by faith. He was imperfect in this, wasn't he? That's actually an encouragement for us. I don't know about you. It's encouragement for me. But Abraham was known as a man of faith. He was saved by his faith in God, and then he lived by that faith. Well, today we'll start in chapter 24, and we'll go through 36 in our flyover. Let's ask the Lord to meet us. God, we know that you are here, that you're in this place as you are everywhere. But we do pray, God, that you would allow this time to be worthwhile, that it would be not just educational, but that it would be a transformational time for us, that we, as we reflect upon who you are as seen in the lives of Isaac and his family, Jacob and his family, I just, even as we sung this morning, the, the faithfulness and, and, and the testimony shared, God, your faithfulness is real. We rely upon your faithfulness. We forget about it. Sometimes we we don't even know how faithful you truly are, I don't think. But I pray that we would see that a little bit more here today and that we would respond rightly to it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our story, if you want to follow along, you can start in chapter 24 of Genesis. Our story moves to the next generation, namely Isaac, Abraham's son. In a sense, the story of Isaac is brief. He's the son of a famous father and the father of a famous son. He doesn't quite get the same amount of publicity as those two on either side of him. But in in, in chapter 24, the focus is primarily on obtaining a wife for Isaac. Now, for Abraham, it's important that Isaac got a wife from his native land and his native peoples. So Abraham sends a trusted servant, we're not quite there yet, to, uh, up to the land of Haran, where he came from, to get a, get a wife from, from Abraham's relatives. And God leads this servant to Rebekah. Rebekah would have been a first cousin of Isaac, and she would become his wife and carry on that line of promise, as you know. Well, in the first part of 25, chapter 25, now Abraham, before he died, he remarried. He had six more sons as a, we would call him an old man, beyond old in our, in our days, but he sends these sons eastward. He sends them out of the land. He gives them gifts and sends them away because he knows that Isaac is the one to inherit his estate as well as eventually inherit the land 
as God had promised. Through Isaac alone would this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, uh, be fulfilled. Well, Abraham finally dies at age 175. He's buried in the same cave that he had purchased to bury his wife, Sarah. And we see that God specifically now has his hand on his son, Isaac. Look at verse 11. It says, God blessed Isaac after Abraham's death. We find out there, too, that Ishmael his, and his descendants settled east of Egypt. They grew into great nations. I don't know how much more we'll see of them, but those nations, those descendants of Israel continue, or of, excuse me, of Ishmael, they continue to be a torment to Israel throughout history. The latter part of chapter 25, the author there now is primarily concerned with the records of Abraham's family, namely Isaac and Rebekah. The couple was struggling in the sense that after 20 years of marriage, Isaac and Rebekah had no children. Remember that promise that their children would inherit the land and would become a great nation. Rebecca was barren, we're told, not able to have any children. It actually seems to be a theme in the family. If you remember, there's three primary matriarchs. All three of them struggled with barrenness, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. God had to open the womb. Now, however this hardship of barrenness came about, we can speculate and think about that, but we learn that through it all, through all of those hardships, as well as, as other challenges such as famine, or murder threats. Those existed too, as we're going to see. But we learn that God's promise of descendants is not defeated through all of those worldly difficulties. They, 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 threaten, they seem to have threatened God's covenant having to do with descendants. But remember what the angel of the Lord said to Abraham when Sarah laughed back a few chapters. The angel of the Lord says, Is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Well, eventually Isaac prayed to the Lord. God answered his prayer with a yes and allowed Rebekah to get pregnant. The yes must have been a double yes because she ended up having twins. And by the way, Grandpa Abraham still had about 15 years to live when these twins were born. He would have probably been inter intertwined with the family still at that point. Right away, notice what we see of these these boys, Jacob in particular, we see some character coming out. Even before he's born, he comes out second, but right after his brother, he's actually holding on to the heel of his brother. And his name actually has connotations of just that, a heel grabber or a supplanter, a deceiver. That's Jacob. Even before his, his birth, you see this dude fighting for himself, if you will. Well, not too long after, this is another evidence of Jacob and his deceiving, conniving character. He convinces his brother Esau to sell his firstborn birthright for a bowl of soup. Exchange it, give it to Jacob, and I'll give you a bowl of soup just to assuage his hunger. Actually, it's interesting. Hebrews 12, verse 16 labels Esau as godless. For this move. That was foolishness on his part. Well, in chapter 26, we take a break from the two brothers, and interestingly enough, deception didn't start with Jacob, did it? Here we have a similar tale to Father Abraham. 
Isaac takes his family to the land of the Philistines. That's kind of down south. And it's also to, to survive, avoid the, the hardship of famine. And he employs the same deceptive scheme that Abraham did years earlier, lying about his wife, Rebekah, in order to save his own skin. In this chapter, we notice also, even amid this issue, look at verses 3, 4, and 5, and again you see it in verse 24, that regardless, this is chapter 26, regardless of man's imperfections, of, man, of Isaac's issues, God reaffirms his covenant that he made with Abraham. He reminds Isaac and he reaffirms that same covenant with Isaac. No one really knows the details of how this will come about. No one knows the end, the timing, the end of the story, but the covenant carries forward from Abraham now into Isaac's family. Chapter 27, you have the tale of two brothers continues. Jacob, having already swindled his brother out of his birthright, he now stoops even lower, I think, in order to deceive his aging blind father. He steals Esau's blessing as the oldest son in addition to the birthright. Now, apparently this blessing once given from, from Father Isaac could not be removed. It could not change recipients. All of this deception, again, actually this time was initiated by Rebecca. She acts upon a prophecy. Check this out. She acts upon a prophecy given to her by God, but she acts upon it in her own way. She, she takes it upon herself. Now, why did she do that? It does remind us a little bit of Sarah. She did something similar. And if you think about Eve, well, she did something similar too, didn't she? We can say that, well, they, they, they should have waited on the Lord instead of taking matters into their own hands. But maybe we should reflect on our own lives as well. But remember, God will take care of what he has promised. God will take care of it in his own way, in his own time. Now, even in this story, interestingly, God works within this but it's not advisable. <laughs> the, end may, the end may be right and true, but that does not justify the unethical, the deceptive means they employed to get to that end. Well, you find Jacob now running for his life from his brother. Rebecca urges him to go north again, back to Haran, to her brother Laban for safety. And we find a grumpy Rebekah with, with less than positive advice there. Finally, Isaac commands Jacob to go back to the relatives, find a wife from the relatives in, Can or in, uh, in Haran, and not one of the girls of the Canaanite nation. Isaac again blesses Jacob before he goes, and he actually asks God to let the Abrahamic covenant rest upon Jacob now. He knows Jacob has taken the place of the firstborn and it will move through his line. Notice verse 9 of 28. You see some of the current spirit of this family. Sad, but true, out of spite for his parents, Esau marries an additional wife of the Canaanite women. He already had a few wives, but he married another one just to spite his parents, as far as I can see in reading that. Well, we're moving on. In chapter 28, Jacob travels toward Haran. He ends up spending the night in a place that he will name Bethel. Here, for the first time in our story, we find Jacob alone. And what else do we find? We find God pursuing him. 
God comes to Jacob via dream. In verse 13 and 14 and 15, here again, God reaffirms the elements of the covenant, this time with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God reminds Jacob of the same things. You will have many descendants. I will give them the land and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through them. The covenant continues. Remember, it's only conditioned upon God through these very imperfect people. God is building a nation through this family with purpose to save the world. Now, check out Jacob's response in verses 16 and 17. We're in chapter 28. Jacob awoke and said, surely Yahweh is, is here. But in verse 17, notice he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, this is not a godly fear that we're seeing from Jacob. This is not actually the same kind of response you get from Abraham and from Isaac when God appeared to them. Remember Adam after he sinned? He was afraid and he hid himself. This is what Jacob's experiencing, I think. He is afraid of God. Perhaps he has good reason to be. But this is interesting. Consider Jacob's situation. He's running from his brother for his life. He's running out of the land of promise, all because of his selfish, deceptive, unethical behavior and character. You can study it for yourself, but personally, I don't think Jacob wanted much to do with God. Whatever the reason was, I think Jacob felt Yahweh was just one of many optional gods out there. He didn't have deep convictions in his life. It doesn't appear other than perhaps to take care of and to fight for number one. Well, toward the end of the chapter of 28, you see finally some signs of an awakening in Jacob's life where he makes a vow to God. Now, this I don't think is so much uh, a deal struck with God with conditions on, on either side. You, you can see it in verse 20. But it's a commitment. I think we're seeing Jacob begin to take Yahweh seriously. As we, as we see this, pay attention to the progression in Jacob's life. As God reaches toward Jacob, God's offering mercy and forgiveness. God protects Jacob. God pursues Jacob. God promises to be with Jacob. God has a purpose for his life. And Jacob eventually calls the place Bethel. Bethel means the house or the place of God. The house of God. So what's the next step in the progression of Jacob's journey? Physically, we find him journeying to the land of his relatives, northeast of Canaan. Spiritually, you can look at it and process it for yourself. Do your own study. The next step might be Jacob living with a mirror. Well, Jacob meets Rachel first in the fields, and then he becomes employed with her father Laban, which is Jacob's uncle, also known as the mirror. Laban seems to have the same character of deceptive, unethical, selfish standards that we've been seeing in Jacob up until this point. In chapter 29, Laban starts out seemingly friendly and generous, but if you know the story, you know... He should have been watching out. As the story goes, 
After seven years, Laban successfully tricks Jacob and gets him married to the wrong daughter. And if you haven't already, look at the details uh, later for yourself. But he ends up marrying both sisters. Now, you've got to wonder if there was ever a moment's peace in that house. But he works for Laban for over 14 years, or for 14 years in exchange for those two wives, the two sisters. Leah, even though Jacob didn't want her originally, bears four sons early on. And just kind of as a side note, even though problems abound, the effects of sin in the family are very real, very evident. God is still at work here. Two of those sons were Levi, a father of a nation of priests, and Judah, the father of the nation that Jesus would eventually come from. Two of those first sons that are born to Leah. Jacob ends up with four wives as he takes the maidservants of both both sister wives, and he begins to have a lot of sons. But Rachel, the favored wife, was unable to have children. That's, of course, a point of contention with the other wives. It's a point of grief. It's even shame in that society. Well, in the first part of chapter 30, it appears that Jacob here had 10 sons and one daughter. Rachel was still barren. Finally, the scripture says God remembered Rachel, and she had a son, Joseph. At this point now, partway through chapter 30, Finally, Jacob is good and tired of working for Laban. It seems to me, you can look at it for yourself, but Laban has taken advantage of Jacob for about 20 years. And now, naturally, he doesn't want to let him go. But Jacob was ready to return to his homeland. And there's an interesting story of scheming and deception there that you can look at later. Jacob is able this time to outwit his father-in-law and becomes prosperous. And even during this period, you can see that evidently God is the one prospering Jacob. If I'm not mistaken now, in the last two chapters, in 29 and 30, Jacob only mentions the name of God one time, and that was in anger. In contrast, his wives, Leah in specific, refers to God positively multiple times through these chapters. So Jacob's spiritual progression has a long road to travel yet. One wonders, I'm not sure, but perhaps his wives at this juncture have a greater fear of Yahweh than he does. Something to think about. Now eventually, as we get into chapter 31, the the large family with huge flocks, herds, possessions, they do flee the frustrated, not-so-friendly Laban the story finally resolves there. You've you got to walk through it in detail if you want to know it. But Laban does pursue Jacob. There's more deception, believe it or not, among the family. And finally, what seems to be a promise of peace between the two of them, not to harm each other. They ratify this promise by making a monument and then by sharing a meal together. The family is full of deceivers and liars, so it would seem. And if you read the story, you see that Rachel, Jacob's wife, Laban's daughter, stole her father's idols and then lied about them. And then when he left, apparently she kept them. So we we also have to ask about that. What did she want with the idols? Why did she take them in the first place? And then why did she hang on to them? What was Rachel's opinion of Yahweh, the one true God? 
Well, Jacob and his procession continue in chapter 32 on the journey now back to the land of Canaan. And brother Esau gets wind of Jacob and he decides to come with 400 men to to meet Jacob. I don't think those 400 men were peaceful monks. And we see that Jacob is shaking in his boots. Actually, my translation says, even after 20 years, it says Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Well, on his own terms, Jacob tries to appease Esau's wrath by sending some gifts ahead, great gifts of animals and, and, and herds. But then something unique happens. Notice the context here for Jacob. He's in trouble. He's, he's got turmoil behind him. He's got turmoil ahead of him. He's headed back to the land of promise. And look at verse 9. He finally calls out to God for help. Now, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing this is a new thing for Jacob. Perhaps this is a breaking point. Jacob's alone. Physically, he's sent his family across the brook. He's physically alone. Spiritually, he's in a desert. I wonder if he's been there most of his life. But Jacob meets God, or should we say, God meets Jacob. Now, this, this is a puzzling story. Maybe you've got it figured out. I don't have it figured out. That a man wrestles with Jacob all night. Was that a regular occurrence in ancient times? But this man could not defeat Jacob, whatever that means. What does it mean to be defeated? So the man supernaturally dislocated Jacob's hip. Must have been more than a man. But even now, as he's injured, Jacob wouldn't let him go until the man blessed him. He must be more than a man. Now check it out. The man asks his name. Why do you think he asked his name? Do you think he knew his name? Jacob tells him his name, and I think what he says, in other words, he doesn't just give him a set of letters that makes up his name, but he says supplanter, self-promoting schemer, heel grabber. That's who I am. Notice the deceit is gone, if that's the case. He admits to his character, to even his identity. And then what happens? God gives him a new name. Israel. Israel, you know that name. One who struggles with God and prevails. I think there's a breaking point here for Jacob. From this point, a transformation begins to take place by the mercy of God in his life. Now, apparently he was more than a man because he does bless him and he tells him he had prevailed in the struggle. And Jacob limps into the morning sun, claiming to have met God and survived. Well, I, I got a lot of questions about this passage, but I think it's fascinating. God came after Jacob. In chapter 33, Jacob and Esau finally meet. And God answered Jacob's prayer with a yes for help. When he called out to God for help, the brothers were reunited peaceably. And remember, this is directly after Jacob finds peace with God himself. We know of no contention between the two brothers directly after this. Um, as, we're, as we're 
talking about Esau. Um, chapter 36, you don't have to jump, we're, we'll come back to 33, but chapter 36 gives an extended account of Esau's family, and it kind of closes up this whole section of Genesis. Esau's family, Esau's otherwise known as, as Edom, you've probably heard that name, they lived in the mountains of Seir, kind of south and east of Israel, and if I'm not mistaken, Edom also is a continual burr in the saddle of Israel over the years. Well, by the end of chapter 33 now, Jacob and his large procession land in Shechem, and they buy a piece of property there, and they build an altar to God. They build an altar to God. What God? Look at verse 20. Chapter 33, it's the God of Israel. The God of Israel. You've heard that phrase. That phrase continues actually through the scripture. The God of Israel. Now, I don't know if it was a good idea or not to settle in Shechem, but there's an interesting story, one that we won't spend a lot of time on, but the natives, Shechem, a man named Shechem and his family, his extended family, they end up defiling Jacob and Leah's daughter, Dinah. I'm not sure of the purpose that Moses had in including this story. You can speculate. Perhaps one of the purposes is to show Jacob's sons now act as we would have expected Jacob to act. There's a just reason for a reaction to what they do, certainly, but they act in deceit and extreme violence as a payback. In this case, Jacob held his peace. It's a story to look at carefully. Don't be too hasty in passing judgment, but study it out a little bit. In the beginning part of chapter 35, listen, God speaks to Jacob and he says, get up, get out of this place and go to Bethel. You remember that. You remember Bethel, the place of God. It's the first place God came to Jacob in a dream, that dream with angels descending and ascending. Now look at what Jacob does in verse 30 or in verse 2, chapter 35 verse 2. He tells all his family, "Get rid of the foreign gods that you have. Purify yourselves. We're going to Bethel where where we'll build an altar to God." What God? Yahweh, of course. The God of Israel. The God who answered me in my distress and who has been with me everywhere I have gone. By the way, isn't that what God promised he would do back there in chapter 28? There's some water under the bridge in Jacob's life by now, but I think finally Jacob is clearing this up for he and for his family. You see finally some conviction. Get rid of those gods, those other gods. There is no other God but Yahweh, the one true God. Now check out verse, verse 7. They came to Bethel. And Jacob adds to the name of the place. He calls it El Bethel, meaning God of Bethel. So that is God of the house of God or God of the place of God. I think what's happening here is, is Yahweh has pursued Jacob. And finally, for Jacob, God is first. It's not just a random place of God, but it is God, the place of God. I think Jacob's priorities have finally straightened out. 
Not that he's perfect beyond this at all, but he's Israel now. He's not Jacob. And don't miss this. God again reaffirms that Abrahamic covenant to him right there at that point. Now to Israel. In the latter part of the chapter, you see Jacob's 12th son born, Benjamin, while his mother Rachel dies in childbirth. Rachel is buried in a place called Bethlehem. Finally, Isaac dies. Jacob and Esau's father, Isaac, dies at 180 years old, and he's buried there by his two sons. Now, as we come to this point in Genesis, let me remind you that we're trying to keep an eye on God's overall purpose. We're trying to keep an eye on what's going on in the broader scheme. We're flying over. We're going to miss most of the individual trees, but we're trying to catch the broadness of the forest as we do this. Moses, remember, Moses is writing this account, these details, some of them very detailed, to a large nation, that nation of Israel down the line ready, but they're ready to take the promised land finally, and Moses is writing everything out for them that they would reflect on God and God's plan for them. I think we're to remember that Adam rebelled against God in the beginning. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and when they did, it debilitated God's good plan. It brought destruction to all of creation as we know it. Well, now we are seeing God's scheme of redemption. He's building this out by a nation, through a nation by a covenant to Abraham and a covenant to Isaac and a covenant to Jacob. So don't forget to look behind you out the plane window as we're flying along. Look out the front and out the sides as we try to track this plan of God. Tracking the plan of God is something we want to do as we fly over. Well, let's consider Jacob's journey for just a minute. Now, I don't mean just going north and going south and back north and south again, but Jacob's journey, his lifestyle. Notice from our flyover today that God sought him. God was faithful. God had a plan, even though Jacob was very humanistic. And Jacob finally turned to God in dependence. I think God does something similar for us. You know, God pursues us. He calls us. At some point, we believe. We believe in Christ as Savior. And as we do, a transformation begins to take place. It's a name change, an identity change, if you will. From a son of evil, a son of the world, or a daughter of the world, to now, a daughter of God, a son of righteousness. If you're not a Christian, by the way, God wants you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, today is the day that you should find him. Turn to, to one of us, talk to me or somebody after the service. But most of us here are believers, we're Christians, then what? What happens then? Well, I just want to remind us of two basics as we think about Jacob's life and the story at hand. One, God is not done with you. He's watching over you, isn't he? He's taking care of you. If you're still kicking and breathing, God has a good plan for your life. 
It's not just to get you saved. It's not just to get you into heaven. It's not just a pass for eternity, but it's now. He wants you now. He has a plan for you now. It's like a shepherd with his sheep. Listen to what a man named Jay Jowett says about a shepherd and his sheep in more current times. He says this, In our country, we do not realize the intimacy of a shepherd with his flock as they do in Syria and in parts of southern Europe. It was my daily delight to watch a shepherd who had this close communion with his flock. Many times I accompanied him through the pastures and by the stream. If, if the shepherd wished to lead his sheep from one pasture to another, he went before them, and he was usually singing. He led them with a song or with a sweet, low, wooing whistle, like the, like, almost like the call of a bird. And his sheep would raise their heads from their grazing. They'd look at the shepherd and follow on. I heard his song and his low bird call by the waterway. I saw the sheep follow his path over the rocky boulders to the still waters where they would drink. At noon, he would sit down in a place of shadows and all his flock crowded around him for rest. At night, when the darkness was falling, he gathered them into the fold where he himself would lay across the opening to protect the sheep. It's like that for us. God wants you. He has a plan for you now. He's guiding you. Jesus says in John 10, first of all, in, in 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the father knows me, I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And if you jump down to verses 27 and 28 of chapter 10, Jesus continues, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hebrews 12 says Jesus is the pioneer or the author of our faith. And then what? He's also the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. What he started, he will continue. Isn't that wonderful news? God has a plan for you. He wants you, and He's guiding you, and He is faithful to you. Well, the second thing is then, what about what is our response to our shepherd? You know, it goes the other way too. This is a two-way street. It's a relationship. Do we want Him? In other words, are we dependent upon Him? I've got a, I got a self-portrait of one of you guys up here. I don't know which one, but I think if we reflect on Jacob, like us, he had to learn dependence. That, that, that learning came through trial. It took hardship. And he had to learn to ask God for help. We all need help. We need help to put away the other gods that we tend to hang on to, the attractions of the world, the distractions to godly living. We need God's help to get maybe unstuck from routines that are just worldly or perhaps even sinful habits. Now, how do you get God's help? Remember Isaac, remember Abraham? They built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And then you have Jacob. God, I need your help. I think it's through dependence upon the shepherd. 
dependence upon the shepherd. Seeking him, knowing him, meditating on him daily, spending time with him. Are you a healthy sheep? Are you a submitted sheep? Do you know his voice, the voice of your shepherd? An American, this time traveling in Syria, saw three native shepherds bring their flocks to the same brook, and the flocks all drank there together. At length, one of the shepherds arose and called out, Follow me! And his sheep came out of the common herd and followed him up the hillside. The next shepherd, the second one, did the same, and his sheep went away with him. The man didn't even stop to count them. The traveler said to the remaining shepherd, Give me your turban and your crook, and let me see if your sheep will follow me as well as they do you. So he put the shepherd's dress on and he called out, Follow me! Not a sheep moved. They did not know the voice of a stranger. So the stranger asked the shepherd, Will your flock never follow anyone else? And the Syrian shepherd rep replied, Well, sometimes a sheep gets sick, and then he will follow anyone. So, are you a healthy sheep? Seeking God, knowing to learn, learning his voice, and then having a heart of dependence upon him. Remember, he's guiding you. He wants you. He's pursuing you and has a plan for your life, every bit of it. So can we say with King David, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Psalm 23. We want to learn to depend upon our shepherd. I promised to give you where we would go next week. So we will finish Genesis, the story of Joseph next week. But let's just pray as Steve comes up for a final song. Dear God, thank you. I'm, I'm just so grateful that you do seek us. You do call us. And then as we believe, you don't leave us. It's not the end of the story. It's only the beginning in some ways. You then continue to lead, continue to guide. And even though sometimes we need discipline in order that we would be submissive to your voice, that we would truly follow your voice you continue with your faithfulness. And so now as we recognize your faithfulness, we, we want to react well. We want to respond well and, and truly follow you. We struggle with that, God, because we're rebellious sometimes too. And I, I pray for each one in our own situation that we would have a deep desire, have the heart of submission that's the best thing for us, that we can follow and know your voice where you lead. Let us depend upon you. I just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.